0: Heavenly Father, your word tells us that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, that we will say to you, Lord, you are our refuge and our fortress, our God in whom we trust. Father, we've gathered here this morning to worship you as our great God. We've gathered here to take shelter in you, our fortress and our strength. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for not knowing you as we should and not obeying you as you have so revealed in your word. We ask that you'd be gracious with us this morning and reveal yourself, make yourself known to us through Jesus Christ that we might be a holy people set apart for your own glory. We are thankful, Lord, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who knew and knows you perfectly, who obeyed you perfectly to be our perfect sacrifice in our stead, and that through faith, by your grace, you cause us to know you even more this day, to love you even more this day, and to obey you as your sons and daughters. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for complaining when things in this life are not going as we want them to go, Forgive us, Father, for not being satisfied completely and utterly in you and you alone. Forgive us as well for turning to sin in the midst of our struggles instead of turning to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to find relief from the pain and suffering. We ask that you would give us a clear picture of your goodness this morning, that we might trust in you at all times and in all ways, whether good or bad. We pray the same, Lord, for all of our brothers and sisters who have gathered this morning throughout the South Bay, all the true churches who are preaching and teaching a crucified risen Savior. We pray in particular for Emmaus Baptist Church and their new pastor, Pastor Aaron. We're so thankful for the calling, Lord, that he has taken. We're thankful for that church on the east side of San Jose, and we ask that you would bless them to be a brilliant testimony and light in their community that through their proclamation of the gospel and the testimony of the lives of the saints there, many would be saved and we'd see a revival in that part of town. We pray, Lord, that you would give him much love and patience to go the distance with his people, that he'd be faithful to proclaim the gospel unashamedly and to take refuge in you, shelter and strength. We ask, Lord, for your presence this morning by your Holy Spirit, that you would reign amongst us today here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church so that in you we can worship you in all ways and in all things. You are certainly worthy of it. and We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Good morning, my friends and my beloved. I'm so glad you're here today, and I'm so thankful for your prayers. I am not feverish today. I don't feel 100%, but I feel so much better than last Sunday. So thank you for praying for me. Um, It's an amazing thing how God puts us through sickness like that to cause us to just rejoice when we're feeling even a little bit better. So I'm very thankful for that. If you have your Bibles, open up please to uh, Exodus chapter 5. We'll be looking at the entire chapter today um, by God's grace. And again, if you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll have an usher bring one to you, and that is a free gift to you from us. If you do not have a Bible, we would love for you to have one and take it home and begin reading it. Um, yesterday, we had um, a few of us had an opportunity to celebrate a, uh, an upcoming event. My second son, Brandon, is going to be married this coming Saturday. And so several of us gathered, and we enjoyed a time of, of shooting clay pigeons. and uh, and a nice lunch out in the sun, and it was just a very, very enjoyable time. And I was reflecting on how glorious that was yesterday. A year ago, Brandon was at Stanford fighting for his life, and how oftentimes life does that. There's an ebb and a flow to it where sometimes things are glorious, and you just sit and you enjoy and you rejoice in the blessings, and other times you are just struggling to make it through the day because it's so hard. As we pick up here in Exodus chapter 5, if you were with us last week, in Exodus chapter 4, we had the high point at this point in the story of the people of God hearing Moses, hearing Aaron. They had spoken God's word. The people had listened. They had seen the miracles. And then we're told in verse 31, look with me in Exodus four thirty-one. that all the people believed and they bowed and they worshiped Yahweh. In other words, we see the entire nation of Israel coming to a saving faith in God And as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 5, the mood grows dark, and we go from this, this climax and this apex of a worship to God as a nation to Moses encountering Pharaoh, and the joy and the belief and the worship turn to disappointment and sorrow and heartache, just as life has a tendency to do for all of us. And so the question for us in light of this passage, I think, a central question is, how do we navigate this? How do we go from those glorious days, those high days, when you feel like you're on the mountaintop with Christ himself, to those depths, those days when you're in the hospital praying for a loved one who's about to lose their life? How do you do that? How do you get through it? This passage poses three questions for us that I think if we can answer in the context of the text, we'll have some Ability to answer the larger question of navigating difficult waters. Three questions. Number one, who is the Lord that we should obey him? Who is the Lord that we should obey him? That's the question that Pharaoh asks. Number two, why all the suffering if this is our good and all powerful God? Number three, where should we turn in the midst of it all? So, who is the Lord that we should obey him? Why all the suffering? And where do we turn? I I pray that you are eager to hear God's word this morning. It is my desire to preach it faithfully to you. I will try on my end, so you try on yours, all right? Listen hard. Listen hard. Number one, who is the Lord that we should obey him? Look at verse one with me, please. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so here we have introduced to us for the first time the the prophetic formula, thus saith the Lord. If you're a King James person, here it says, and the Lord commands, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel as God, through Moses, commands Pharaoh to let his people go. Not Pharaoh's, but God's. Now, there are some ancient manuscripts from the times of Ramses II that actually talked about the slaves having an opportunity to go and worship their own gods, where Pharaoh would give them time off to do that. So this is not an unreasonable request at face value. But as we saw last week, God understood and Pharaoh understood that they were not asking to simply go out into the desert and offer sacrifices to Yahweh for three days. This was a permanent departure, Israel leaving Egypt so they could what? So they could worship Yahweh and not Pharaoh for the remainder of their lives to become a separate people out of Egypt. Pharaoh's response was as predicted We saw it in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. Look at verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he says on the one hand, this Yahweh, this great I am, Moses, that you're talking about, I've never heard of him before. And that's likely. But he's also saying it sarcastically. He's saying, who is this Lord, this God of slaves? that I, the God of Egypt, am going to submit to? Who is this Lord that expects me to dismiss hundreds of thousands of slaves and deplete my labor force here in almighty Egypt? You can almost hear Pharaoh laughing at Aaron and Moses at the request. And yet we know how the story plays out, my beloved. We know that the psalmist said the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord, but he who sits in the heavens, what? He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them as he will scoff at Pharaoh in the next few chapters. Knowing Yahweh, obeying his word, is the central conflict between Pharaoh and God that takes it all the way through Pharaoh's destruction in chapter 14. Knowing God relationally, Pharaoh did not get it. God is king. God is creator. He is the Lord of all that is seen and unseen. Pharaoh did not recognize his authority or act in accordance with it, which is quite ironic because all of Egypt operated in that fashion in accordance with Pharaoh. All of Egypt was to relate to Pharaoh as king, to recognize his authority and act in accordance with Pharaoh's commands. And so from the onset, we see that Pharaoh makes it crystal clear, and this will play all the way through chapter 14. That he's not about to relinquish his position, his power, or his authority to this upstart Yahweh. This new God coming from the desert about the people of Israel. And so Moses warns Pharaoh. And this is a legitimate warning. And I believe it's done in love. He warns Pharaoh. Look at verse 3. If you do not allow us to go a three-day journey into the wilderness that they may sacrifice to the Lord our God, pestilence or the sword will fall upon them, and that them included Pharaoh and Egypt. And after Moses' near-death experience in the wilderness, he knows all too well the consequences of disobeying God even in the slightest manner. Look at verse 4. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Pharaoh's not listening, is he? Get back to your burdens, verse 5. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And so Pharaoh accuses Moses and Aaron of taking the people from their work with these fanciful ideas of being a nation, a holy people, God's people, serving this I am Yahweh beyond the borders of Egypt. And some of the scholars and the commentaries actually argued, and I think convincingly so, that in light of the message that Moses brought, they stopped working, many of them. That they said, you know what, we're going to be delivered. The Exodus is going to take place. Let's no longer work. And so Pharaoh sees that they're, they're on strike. This is a first labor union strike taking place here in the book of Exodus. I want you to notice Pharaoh's solution to overcome this strike. Look at verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words, speaking of the word of God given to Moses. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, listen to this closely, thus says Pharaoh. And now the battle lines are drawn, are they not? Yahweh versus Pharaoh, and what we see here in this storyline is the battle lines in the heart of every human being. God versus man. Verse 1, thus saith the Lord. Verse 10, thus saith Pharaoh. Verse 1, let my people go. Verse 9, Pharaoh said, let heavier work be laid on them. You know, at the Feast of Dedication, in the Gospel of John, our Lord Jesus Christ The second person of the holy triune God, God in the flesh, had the exact same problem. The Jews gathered around him, John chapter 10, Jesus, and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, which of course he had multiple times. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. And then he said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may, listen, know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Knowing God through Jesus Christ and believing his word as revealed in the Bible is the great struggle, is it not, my beloved? The same struggle taking place between Pharaoh and his messenger Moses, God's messenger Moses, takes place in the battlefields of our own hearts each and every day. Each and every day, our own flesh wants to know one God, and that is ourselves, and it wants to listen to one voice, and that's our own. We don't want to listen to the God of the Bible. We don't want to know the God of the Bible. And like Pharaoh with Moses, Satan and the world and our own flesh wants us to hear the word of God and say, as Pharaoh did, pay no regard to lying words. How often, my beloved, have you read the Word of God and then set it aside? Now, you may not have said, oh, it is a lie, but you lived as though it was a lie because you know what it says, you know what it tells you to do by the power of the Spirit in the love of Christ, and yet you do not do it. You say it's a lie too. Pay no regard to lying words. It is the weapon. It's the weapon that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It was the weapon that Satan used against Adam and Eve in the very beginning. God said what to Eve? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. Satan came along and said, if you eat from the tree, surely you will not die. Instead, you will be like God. Knowing and obeying his word has always been the true battle, my friends. It's the very battle that you exercise every single day. Every single day you wake up, whether you know it or not, and you say, today will I know the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or will I place myself upon the throne of my own heart and mind and be like God? Every single day you ask yourself, am I going to learn and know and submit to the Word of God by grace through faith in Christ, or will I live this day by my own voice, my own wisdom, my own power, my own strength, doing what is right and wrong based upon what I think is best, having no fear of God before my eyes. Who will you know is God in your life? The God of the Bible who tells you, for example, that Sexual intimacy is between a a man and a woman in the confines of a covenant marriage. Will this be the God that you know? Or the God of the moral revolution that says your body is your body to do whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want? Who will you listen to more closely? The God of the Bible who says you are to work to His glory, for His glory. Or the God of this age that tells you to work hard and make lots of money to make a name for yourself? Will you listen to Jesus Christ when he tells you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Or will you listen to the God of vengeance and take revenge, hold a grudge, and treat poorly those who have harmed you? My beloved, knowing and listening to Yahweh, the one true living God, will not only determine your day-to-day life, but it will determine your eternal destiny. The CW Network just launched a new ad campaign of their older one called We Defy. Not sure if you've heard of this. If not, this will be an introduction for you. Listen. Just saw this last week. The CW Network, you all know what that is, the uh, television network? Quote, we are open to all, all choices, all orientations, all lifestyles, all possibilities. This is the time when anything can happen and every, everyone is invited. A time to represent and defy the odds because when we defy, listen. When we defy assumptions, change happens. When we defy division, hope happens. When we defy judgment, love happens happens. We are open to all and defy anything that stands in our way, which would include the God of the Bible. This is the messaging coming today to us from the culture. It's an old tune. This is the same message that Pharaoh was singing centuries ago. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Not sure how much the advertising and marketing people at CW Network made, but they should have just gone back to Exodus chapter 5 and plagiarized. (laughs) Old message. My beloved, the only remedy for overcoming this refusal to know and obey the living God is to have a personal encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ. That's why we need to be faithful to know Him and press into His Word that we might really know Him and really obey Him And why we must be a people who share the gospel with all the pharaohs in our lives. And there are many, are there not? There are loved ones, family and friends, co-workers in your life that will say to you, who is the Lord that I should obey his word? We must bring them the gospel that they might repent and believe and know him and obey his word. We know how it turns out for Pharaoh. It's not a good ending. And if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you'll share the gospel that their end might be different. All right, so that's my first point. Are you still with me? All right, who is the Lord that we should obey him? Number two, <clears throat> a lot of suffering in this passage. Pharaoh gets the stakes here. He understands that if he were to release hundreds of thousands of slaves, that this would ruin his economy, and they're on the brink of rebellion. If the scholars are right, they're already no longer doing their work, and they're waiting for God to act through Moses to set them free. So, Mo- so Pharaoh... He's a politician. He, does, he drives a wedge in between Moses and the people, in between the message that God brought and those slaves in Egypt. And he does this by making their labor exceedingly difficult. Look at verse 6. So the same day, the same day that Moses brings the message, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, listen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, Let them go and gather the straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and listen. Pay no regard to lying words. So that's Pharaoh's strategy. The taskmasters were Egyptians. They reported to Pharaoh. The taskmasters had foremen. They were Israelites. And the foremen, actually, they would watch over and they would direct these um, gangs of slaves, these groups of, slave, of Hebrew slaves. And their primary task was the making of bricks. When the slaves did not make enough bricks, they were beaten. When the foremen of the slaves did not make enough bricks, they were beaten. Now, this, this brick-making comprised a large portion of this chapter. And so I went back and I tried to get a better understanding of, of why it was so difficult. Um, the red clay that was used uh, populated the area around the Nile. And it was, it was really good, except for the fact that it didn't stay together well. So they would take straw and they'd mix it in. And the straw had binding power. It would actually give the, the red clay strength and stability. And so they would have these slaves br- br- bring the clay up, And mix it together with the straw. And then they would put it out and they would cut it into very large bricks. Much larger. When I think brick, I think of a small brick. They were much larger than that. And the Egyptians used these red straw bricks for almost all their primary building projects. For their temples and their palaces, the storehouses, their military installations, administrative buildings. Millions and millions of bricks were required to be produced each year to keep up with the lustful architectural desires of the pharaohs. We actually have ancient manuscripts that speak to slave slaves making their quotas and how much they were to produce. But without straw, straw that was provided by pharaoh in bundles, without the straw, they were unable to make these bricks to reach their quota. Pharaoh said, go out and gather something different. He called it stubble. And stubble was the lowest part of the plant, the stalk or the root. And they were required to take that. But this this stubble, it wasn't good for livestock. It wasn't good for brick making. And not only that, worse yet, they were told that they had to go and collect it themselves. In other words, Pharaoh was making an impossible task. He said, I want you to make the brick, but you don't have any straw. I want you to make the brick, but you've got to go get stubble on your own. And I want the same quota. He was creating a situation that would cause them to stop believing in Moses. Look at verse 9 again. That they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Stop listening to this Yahweh. Stop listening to his servant Moses and his servant Aaron Give up on this idea of becoming a holy people set apart for God's glory. Boy, that's a a message we hear often, is it not? You find yourself. The evil one's desire is the same today, my friends, to make your life difficult. Difficult at home, difficult at work, difficult in your body. So that what? So you'll give up hope in the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit so that you'll walk away from Christ. Or minimally, you'll stay with Christ, but you're just going to have a terrible testimony to the world. Look at verse 14. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Most of the commentators said that, that many of these foremen and many of the slaves likely died during this period. They were beaten so badly. Remember, they're, they're in the midst of making bricks, dehydration, heat stroke, exhaustion and beatings. You're not going to last long, my beloved. They had gone from the climax of, of the end of chapter four. They heard, they seen, they believed, and they worshipped to this horribly low point, probably the lowest in their 400 years in Egypt, in the captivity. So the question I asked, which is probably the question you asked, is why would God do this now? I mean, it seems like they're just getting started, right? God reveals himself to Moses. He sends Moses and Aaron back. They come back. They have the message. The people hear. The people believe. They worship God. And then it goes all bad. Why would God do this? Why would he get their hopes up? Only to dash them with an impossible work by Pharaoh. I wish there were an easy answer for this, my beloved. I'm not going to give you an easy answer. You might not even like the answer that I give you. As creatures, we must remember that the Creator's purposes do not always proceed in the way that we expect them to proceed. God's timing and God's methods oftentimes are not our timing and our methods. And oftentimes we love to sit upon the throne, do we not? And say, God, you should have done this then. You shouldn't have waited on this one. As sinful creatures in a fallen world, especially in the Western world, we expect things to happen instantaneously, exactly as we want them to be, right? We want it fast, we want it easy. If it's not fast, it's not good. If it's not easy, it's not good. We don't want any traffic jams, we don't want any flight delays at the airport, we don't want to have to file our taxes. We want it fast and easy. Over the past twenty years, I can tell you, pastoring here, several brothers and sisters have come up to me and they've said, "Pastor, you're not going to believe how amazing God worked in my life. Now, he opened up these doors for me just like that, without any effort. It was so easy. The doors were just there." And I, I, I never know what to say. <laughs> because that does not sound like my God. Oftentimes, those doors were not of God and they were snares placed there by the evil one that were walked through and brought much destruction. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that God makes everything in the life of his children difficult. His grace abounds. Every day, my beloved, his grace abounds. But we must not assume, listen closely, that carrying out his commands will increase our comfort. That's a bad assumption. I'm going to obey God and my life will get easier. That's not what the Bible teaches. And remember, we want to know God and we want to know His Word. The Bible tells us that there's no such thing as an untested faith. Your faith in Jesus Christ will be tested. And if it's never tested, it's not a real faith. You say, well, how do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says over and over and over. Not only in its didactic teaching, but in its examples. I have too many here, but I'll just give you a few. When you believe and obey Jesus Christ, just as Moses and Aaron and the people believed God, suffering is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. I mean, Moses came and put himself against Pharaoh and the most powerful nation in the world. Right. When you come to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, you have made an enemy of Satan, the world, and your own flesh. You have three enemies on you all the time. And therefore, suffering and persecution will be inevitable. Paul said, listen to this, we are fellow heirs with Christ. This is from Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You can't have one without the other. You say, well, that was just Paul. Not true. Listen to Peter. Peter tells us to not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. First Peter 4.12. He continues in 1 Peter chapter 1. That we should rejoice when they come, these trials our way, so that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith will be tested if it's a real faith. James goes so far as to say, count it. Oh, these are hard words. Listen, he says, count your trials all joy. Count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. All joy, James, really? Is that how you work your way through the difficult times in your life? Here comes a trial. So excited. In the Lord of the Rings, for those of you who are people who like Lord of the Rings, if you remember a particular scene, Frodo had become overpowered by the ring and almost killed Sam when they were in the city of Osgiliath. The fight ends, and this is right before Faramir is going to release Frodo and Sam to continue on their journey to to Mordor. Frodo says to Sam, I can't do this, Sam. I can't go on. Journey's too hard. Listen to Sam's words. They are so glorious, and I think applicable for us in the midst of our struggles. Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, two little hobbits. Then he says, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Listen, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? That's a legitimate question. Sam continues, but in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Those were the stories that stayed with you, Sam says to Frodo. Frodo agrees, and they continue on. My beloved, practically for us, that means that we must go from the Sunday amens, praise the Lord, to our Monday morning headaches, our Tuesday morning temptations, our Wednesday morning gossip, our Thursday morning discouragement, our Friday morning traffic jams, and our, our Saturday struggles with slothfulness. We must go from here into the real world and know that this suffering is not God's failure to keep His promises with His people. As the Israelites thought in Moses' day, he never promised following his son would be easy. He never promised that, just the opposite. What did he say? That you must pick up your cross and follow Christ daily. Pick it up. It's during these times, my beloved, that the heart is truly tested, is it not? It's during these times when we discern the true love of our own hearts. Do we want God? God? Or do we want the things of God? Do we want the blessings, the provision, the security, the comfort? Or do we want Him? You see, struggles have the the wonderful power of sifting through that noise in the innermost sanctum of your heart and really getting right down to it. God or the things of God? And this must be sifted out lest we find ourselves in the end losing everything, including God himself. We must get this right now before we come into his presence. Are you, I say this in love, are you a fair weather worshiper? You know the fair weather fans that they love the team and the team's doing well and the team's not doing so well and then they they bash their team and they burn their jerseys and they never watch them again. Are you a fair weather worshiper, faithful in your church attendance, in your discipleship, in your Bible reading, in your prayer, in your ministry, when life is good, only to pull back or maybe pull away altogether when hardship comes? Ask yourself that, my friends, because if you struggle worshiping God when things are hard, your heart might be more for the things of God than God himself, and that is a very dangerous place to be, according to the word of God. All right, so we've seen, I pray, the importance of knowing God and obeying his word. We don't want to be like Pharaoh. It says, who is the Lord that we should obey him? And number two, I pray that we see that this path that we've been called and set upon to follow Christ is not an easy path. It's a hard struggle. Coming to a saving grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ means that the world is your enemy, your flesh is your enemy, and Satan is your enemy. You will be tested, as many of you are right now. So the question is, I think, we'll close with this, is if this is the calling, if knowing God and obeying his word makes life at times more difficult, just as we saw here, then where do we turn for help? Last point, where should you turn? Look at verse 15. I pray you're still with me. Verse 15, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came, and they cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. So some time had passed, not too much time, but some time had passed between Pharaoh's decree to not let the the slaves, the the Israelite slaves have any straw, and the foreman here being beaten and therefore crying for relief. They're unable to make their quota. So what did the foreman do? Remember, these are Israelites. What do they do? Do they turn to God? They don't. Do they go to Moses and Aaron, our Lord's servants? Not yet. They do with another word. No, they, they literally, in the Hebrew it says, they cry out to Pharaoh. Now that's interesting because if you were here with us a few weeks ago, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it said the people cried out to God for relief from Pharaoh. And yet here... The foremen go to the very one responsible for inflicting the pain and suffering. They seek relief from the slave master. Not only do they turn to Pharaoh instead of God. Did you notice as I was reading that something stand out? They reestablish their relationship with him. Three times in two verses they say, Why do you treat your servants? Why Why do you not give straw to your servants? Behold, your servants are beaten. Now, that's interesting. At the end of chapter 4, they're bowing down, they're bowing down, remember, twice, and they're worshiping God as God's servants, as Yahweh's servants. And yet here, in the midst of their difficulties, they go back to Pharaoh to renegotiate their slave contract and say, we are your servants. We are your servants. We are your servants. Instead of turning to the God who called them to what? To be free. To freedom. My friends, whenever we find ourselves in trouble whenever we're struggling and whether we're battling with sin and we turn to sin as a solution. When we go back to our old ways, we're doing exactly what the foreman did here before Pharaoh. And yet, I think you would argue that oftentimes that is your response, is it not? And when things are really hard, is your first thing to the Word of God? Is it to prayer? Is it to a brother or sister in Christ? Or do you turn to that sin that sin that will help you cope, the drug, the alcohol, the entertainment, the pleasure, the food, the sex, the self-pity that will get you through that time instead of the living God. If you do, just as the the foreman before Pharaoh, you will find no relief. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. We all know it too well. It always demands more and it gives us less. More bricks, less straw. That's the path of sin. The more a man struggles with lust, the less happy he is and the greater his craving becomes to satisfy those lustful desires. The more a woman covets clothes or beauty, the less happy she is and the greater her craving becomes to satisfy her covetous desires. Going to our sin to seek relief, my beloved only increases the depth of our struggles and increases the speed of our own destruction. Do you remember when Israel was about to be taken over by the Assyrians in the 8th century? Do you remember what their plan number one was? Go to Egypt. Run to Pharaoh. This is what God said through Isaiah with this plan in mind. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. This is not new for God. His people have been doing that a long time, running to Egypt, running to Pharaoh. Make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Verse 7, Isaiah 30, listen, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. It always has been. It is today. If you turn to Egypt, if you turn to sin to find relief in the midst of your struggle or relief from your sin, sin will beget more sin. That's a dead man's spiral. You cannot get out of it. More bricks, less straw, more suffering, inevitably death. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone. So much so that, like the foreman, you'll go right back to it when you're in times of need Not only, I want you to notice, did they try to find relief from Pharaoh in the midst of their suffering, they lash out against those who were trying to help them. Look at verse 19. These are some sad verses. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. (laughs) They were in trouble, all right. You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So what do they do? They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. As they came out from Pharaoh, verse 21, and they said to them, the Lord look on you. This is the foreman speaking to God's servant Moses and God's servant Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So after finding no relief from Pharaoh, do they turn to God? They do not. They do go to the servants of God, but not to seek help but to judge. You see, in the the minds of the foremen, they're lashing out because this could not have been God's doing. And this must have been something Moses or Aaron said. Either they misrepresented themselves, they misspoke, it wasn't their calling, whatever it was, they said this could not be of God, so they call upon God to punish Moses and Aaron. The Lord, verse 21, look on you and judge. Oh, my goodness, this is a dangerous mindset and how quickly we fall in it. This is a mindset of condemnation and judgment. When you try to relieve your sin by turning to sin, one of the consequences is you will then turn outward, and you will judge and adjudicate and condemn the very people trying to help you. Brothers and sisters in the church who will come alongside of you, and in Matthew 18 sentence said, listen, you don't see this, but you need to hear it. The foreman were mistaken, and they were basing this adjudication on the presumption that a good God never allows difficulty or harm to come to His people. That's an old lie. That's an old lie. Years ago, we had a, a church discipline case here with a man who was not being appropriate with his wife. As a result of pride, after being confronted by, with his sin, By members of the church and ultimately the church, instead of turning to God, he turned back to his pride. He continued in his sin and he blamed the church and the elders and the very people that were trying to help him out of his snare. Listen, my beloved, in the Christian walk, you will often suffer at the hands of those people who are trying to help you. If you're in the body of Christ, get used to it. I'm not saying it's right, but that's part of life in the body of Christ. If someone is struggling with sin and they go to sin to resolve it, their situation gets worse, not better. So when you come to them as a friend, as a brother or sister, they will do oftentimes like the foreman did, and they will attack you, the one trying to bring relief. Do not be surprised. So what should I do instead? Turn to God. Because that's what Moses did. Look at verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses saying, the more I obey you, the worse things get. I listen to you, and now look where we are. The workload has been doubled. The people are crying out. The foremen of the people are casting judgment upon Moses and Aaron. But Moses, of all people, should have expected Pharaoh to respond like this. Should he not? We have twice now in the dialogue between God and Moses, the burning bush. Exodus 3.19, The king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That had not happened yet. And then he makes it even more clear. In Exodus 4, 21, God said to Moses, I will harden his, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. Moses should not have been surprised. It wasn't going to be a one, one command. Moses says, okay, and then they're let go. No glory in God in that. So Moses did not understand because he too refused to listen to God. And so they're all in the same boat. Pharaoh would not listen. The foreman wouldn't listen. And Moses wouldn't listen. No one's listening to God. But Moses was distinct from Pharaoh and the foreman in that even though he was questioning, he still trusted. You say, well, how, how, do I, how do you get that, pastor? I'm looking at this passage, and I think it's the same passage you're looking at, and it doesn't sound like he's trusting him that much. In fact, he lodges two serious complaints against God. Number one, he blames God for causing the trouble. Look at verse 22. You have done evil to this people. That's a severe accusation. And then he says, number two, you're breaking your promise. Verse 23, you have not rescued your people at all. That doesn't sound like he's trusting. He is, and I'll show you why in a minute, but we must remember something. Moses is writing in retrospect. He's writing after the fact. And so he is disclosing his sinful heart before the wilderness people that they might learn from his impatience. He is setting himself up as an example of how not to respond to difficulties and struggles. He was being unreasonably impatient, and he wanted the future generations to see that, to know that God's timing and God's methods do not always coincide with ours, as we've already stated. But even though we don't understand and most of the commentators agreed here that this is, this is more of confusion and struggle than it is accusation and judgment against God on Moses' part. Even though Moses did not understand, even though we don't understand, Moses is saying God wants us to know trust in the Lord. And you say, well, that's awfully simple, and it is, and I like simple. I need simple. When I'm struggling with sin, I need simple. I need repent and believe and be saved. When I'm going through a real hard time a year ago in the hospital with Brandon, thinking I might lose my son, I need simple trust in the Lord. He's always good. You don't need highbrow theology in those moments, my beloved. You need a word or two to settle your heart in the peace of Christ, that you know that God is good. You say, well, how do I know that that Moses is still trusting the Lord? I'll show you, and, and you probably wouldn't pick up on this. Verse 22 when he says, "Oh Lord, why have you done evil in this to this people?" He doesn't use the word Yahweh. He says Adonai. "Oh Adonai, oh sovereign God. Why do you do these things? Sovereign God, I don't understand why you do these things. Sovereign God, it must be for our good." And so, the very name that he calls God, shows us that he still trusts in the Lord, that the Lord is good, even if Moses doesn't get it. And Moses spends the rest of his 40 years still not getting it. And I would say that'll be true for us too until we take our last breath. A lot of things that God does in our lives that we just don't get, right? A lot of things. But he is sovereign. He is good. And so rather than Moses turning to Pharaoh Rather than Moses turning to his own flesh or his own wisdom, what does Moses do here? He goes to God in prayer, and he prays a very honest prayer. It's sincere. It's in faith, and you can pray to God like that. He said, no, this sounds blasphemous. Not at all. Adonai, sovereign God, I don't understand. I am suffering. I'm in pain. I don't like this. Adonai, sovereign God, I know you're good. struggled to understand God's sovereignty, but he knows God is good. 1,500 years later, the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, would face a similar dilemma. The Savior who would come in the flesh, the one who never had to say, who is the Lord? Jesus Christ never asked that question. He had known God the Father and God the Spirit perfectly from eternity past because he was fully God, and he obeyed every word every jot, every tittle of God's holy law in his earthly ministry. Like Moses, God sent Jesus to set his people free from slavery. And like Moses, Christ would have to suffer first. But something infinitely worse than bondage in Egypt, he would have to suffer death upon the cross. The ordained place where God would decreate his son by breaking his body and spilling his blood so that through this perfect sacrifice of his firstborn son, he could recreate a people like us. He could recreate a holy people for himself, for his own glory, granting us mercy and granting us grace instead of the judgment and condemnation we deserve for our own sins. But unlike Moses, unlike Aaron, unlike the elders and the people who only heard part of God's message from the burning bush, Jesus heard it all. He believed, Isaiah, when the prophet spoke centuries before of the sacrifice he would have to make upon the cross, Isaiah 53. Jesus believed this with all his heart. Surely he took on our infirmities and carried our sorrows, speaking of Christ. Yet we considered him stricken by God and struck down and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus believed that. And that's why he asked God if there was another way to let it be so. And God said there was not. He believed it, but instead of complaining or instead of blaming God, we're told in Hebrews 12 two, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? And then in the midst of of His darkest hour, literally His darkest hour, as He was hanging upon that cursed cross and He was receiving in His flesh the due penalty of our sin, the full wrath of a holy God, He cries out, Matthew 27, 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not complaining, you He had to receive the punishment so that you can be saved. Christ had to be forsaken by the Father so that you and that I and all who repent and believe could be saved. He's not complaining, but just like Moses, he's resting in God. You say, well, how do you know that? All he says is, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we know where that comes from. You know where that comes from? The 22nd Psalm, it's a Psalm of David. I want to read to you a couple verses and you'll know why that cry was not a cry of hopelessness. Psalm 22, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Verse 3, listen with all your might. You've prayed that first part before, have you not? Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, thinking of Moses. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to be as a people, my beloved, every moment of every day. You want to be striving to know God and obey his word. You want to understand deeply that the struggles you're going through, it's part of this Christian journey. But you want to be able to say that Christ suffered eternally in your place. So what? So these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for you a glory that far outweighs them all, according to Paul. And instead of turning to your sin to find relief, you turn to God in prayer. You trust in the goodness of God. Moses did. David did. Jesus, at the height of his suffering, trusted in the goodness of his Father. So that when you sit upon your throne and you say to God, Yahweh, this is not good timing. This is not how it should go. This was not my plan. But I trust in you, Lord. You are good, Lord. You are always good. Andrew Peterson has a lyric here that we're going to sing in a minute. My God, my God, be near me. There's nowhere else to go. And Lord, if you can hear me, please help your child to know that you're always good, you're always good. As we try to believe what is not meant to be understand, will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. You're always good. You're always good. You're always good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we admit that more oftentimes than not, we turn to our flesh and to sin in the midst of our struggles. We go to the very slave masters that are inflicting much of the pain and suffering we go through. We know what the Word says to turn to you in prayer, and to turn to you through our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet how often do we fail to do that? I ask, Lord, for... A right revelation for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we might see, even when we cannot see clearly, that you are always good. That turning to you in the midst of our struggles is always the right choice. It is always the best choice for our well-being, for your glory. We ask, Father, that you would help us to see that knowing you is eternal life, as Christ said that following you, knowing your word, and submitting to it is the life you've called us to and how blessed we are when we do. Help us, Father, to press hard into these eternal truths, to be these people that you have called and sent your son to die on our behalf that we might be these people. We praise you for being our glorious creator, and we thank you for being a good God, that we can gather here and worship you through song and through prayer and the proclamation of this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that there's a soul here in this room that does not know your Son, Christ, as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would be gracious to save all souls here who do not know Jesus. For those who know Christ, I pray you would be gracious, Lord, to encourage us this very hour to press on toward the goal to win that prize for which you've called us heavenward in his name. We love you, Father, and we thank you so much for your word that we'd be able to stand here 3,500 years later and proclaim the gospel through the teachings of Moses. How amazing you are. Give us that understanding of your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.